This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Deidre Lynch, a scholar of British literature, book history, and the history of reading. This episode is about the history of homemade books. We may think of reading and writing as opposite activities, but there's a long history of people reading with blank books by their side so they could write out their favorite passages as they went. Deidre Lynch is interested in what these homemade books can tell us about the people who filled them up. Like someone's Pinterest board or Tumblr blog today, these curated collections of words told a story about a person's individual identity. Beyond that, they could also tell the story of relationships within a social group, with many people contributing extracts to a single book. Deidre Lynch, welcome. Happy to be here. So today we're going to be talking about the history of homemade books. So I don't think homemade books is a technical term. So could you start by just explaining a bit more the kinds of books that you are researching? Um, You know, how they're different from kind of the standard, like professionally printed books that most people I think, think of immediately when they hear the word book. The distinction that I have found that's useful for identifying the rather broad spectrum of books that I'm engaging is a distinction that the media theorist Lisa Gittleman has made when she contrasts books that are supposed to be read through with books that are supposed to be filled in and filled up. And I'm interested in the latter kind of book. Mm, So filled in or filled up. So are we talking about books that sort of begin in blank? We are indeed. We're talking about the long history of of blank books. Yeah. So I guess what what is the longer history of these, these books made to be filled in by their owners? How how did that begin and what kind of things were people putting in them? It probably goes back as long as there have been books. I think that kind of many discussions of reading and how to read uh, Mm -hmm. with... Ding, 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 the name of our podcast. Ding, 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 (laughs) yes. Uh, Many of these discussions of how to read pictured somebody sitting with a printed book in front of him, usually him, uh, with another book, a blank book, open beside that one and laboriously by hand writing out transcriptions of certain select passages from the printed book. This was the process known as, as, as the making of extracts. Uh, listeners to this podcast who know uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice might remember that the dowdy middle sister, Mary Bennett, is said to have as her primary pastime the the reading of great books and making of extracts. Okay. So this was really, you know, it was a kind of, I don't know, a stereotype of what reading involved, but it was also a real practice that people were doing. So reading a printed book and then copying out their favorite passages into a notebook? 
Yes, it goes back to the notion that reading is all about a process of choice and selection or election. And then reading is also thought to be digestion. So you've kind of condensed, uh, you've condensed a number of books into what is generally called your commonplace book. Uh, and that becomes the record of your history as a reader. Interesting. So, so I mean, when we're talking about these books to be filled in, you know, they start their lives blank or just with some lines. Um, but there's a real clear sense of what people are putting in them. So early in the history of the commonplace book, what, what people are putting into them is in fact commonplaces, proverbial wisdom. And that's very much a process associated with being a student. What happens over the course of history is that as women become a more and more important part of the reading audience, the books also start to be a record, not just of what is common wisdom, but also of something more personal and individualized, they become the record of one's taste as a reader. And the commonplace books that, that I've been researching morph as the 18th century turns into the 19th century in something that gets renamed, um, often named an album or a scrapbook. Yeah. And that's interesting because, I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners will will have a sense of what a scrapbook is, even if they haven't heard of a commonplace book before, right? That idea of kind of taking little pieces of things that you love, you know, a picture of some words and combining them into one book that is kind of your record of you. I think that is familiar to people today. I think it's familiar from social media today, isn't it? Because <laughs> this, this is how we use Instagram and, and, and Pinterest now, among other things. Mm. So is it also the case that um, these books are, are not necessarily just written by one person, right? Like we started with the idea of one reader kind of keeping a record of their own reading, but are there also examples where these books are kind of collaboratively written? There are many examples, and and that is one of the changes that uh, one is one marks when one talks about how the commonplace book morphs into the album. The album is often created by an entire social circle as a kind of register of their shared tastes, but also as a record of their friendships. Uh, so it's like you crowdsource to fill up the pages of your book. Yeah. Do you have an example of a specific book that um, was, you know, crowdsourced by a, a specific social circle? Oh, so many examples. <laughs> so where do I, I, I start? So um, an album from the 1820s that I've looked at in the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh. Uh, it, it opens with this poem. Hither knights and ladies gay, each an offering bring, I pray. Picture right or maxim wise, tuneful lay or painted flies, verses all like pearls strung, doggerel ne'er by poet sung, autograph of great or small, 
here is ample space for all. None a token can refuse since it is a lady, Suze. <laughs> okay. Terrible poem, terrible poem, but it is a good, pra- a good description, I think, of this practice where one person, generally a woman, would kind of tax her acquaintance to for contributions that would fill up this book. So, yeah, so that poem ended with a lady sues, so that's not sue in the sense of like a legal court case. It's no, an it's older a, sense of the word. Yeah, a lady requests this. Um, requests it quite imperatively. Mm, interesting. So, I mean, what I'm getting is that some of the kind of dynamics that apply in social groups in general, face-to-face, you know, relationships, you know, one person dominates a group and tells other people what to do. Like that you can also find in these books. Yes, I think that that's exactly right. Um, And that's what makes them so interesting is that they are a record of a social group's interactions that, that their need to be some social back and forth for the book to get filled up in the first place. And then the book itself becomes a conversation piece. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to ask a bit more about kind of the, the poems that people are contributing here. So, so are we still in this kind of tradition of copying from other books? Are people just kind of, replicating verbatim, you know, their favorite poem from a poet, printed poetry book. They're not writing their own poems. Is that right? It's a mixture. I mean, what, what is quite extraordinary is that often kind of poems that, you know, I recognize because they're by the poet Lord Byron or by the poet Felicia Hammonds are copied into these books and on on the page where we would expect to see the name of the author, so Lord Byron or Felicia Hammonds, sometimes you get the initials that I have inferred and most people I think would, would agree are the initials of the person who's transcribed the poem so that the in a weird way the transcriber almost becomes co-author with the great published popular author whose material he is pilfering. Yeah. I mean, is there a bit of a kind of (laughs) violation going on there? I think authors might have felt that in, in some ways. It is a very interesting moment in the history of authorship for that reason, you could say just as you're getting the cult of the literary genius, you are also getting this competing account in which authorship is something more composite and it involves like multiple players, including the transcriber who puts his or, or her initials at the bottom of the page. Yeah, well, I can kind of imagine that in a way, because it's like, you know, if you bring a certain writer into your social circle, like, you don't necessarily claim credit for having written it, but like, you claim some credit for having brought it into that group of people. 
I think that that's exactly right. And you're also, I think, claiming some credit for creating a new context in which that author's words are being read. And there, there's a kind of impulse to remix that is very important to album culture. Yeah. So um, I think in that um, not very good introductory poem to that one album that you read um, earlier on, um, it was sort of saying something about like knights and ladies, right? So like asking both men and women, if I'm understanding that right, to contribute to this album. Um, but you've also mentioned the kind of the growing place of women within this culture, and that was partly what shifted it. So I'm just curious, you know, it, it sounds like it wasn't exclusively women writing in these books, but but what what was the place of women both in terms of like contributors, but also maybe just the kind of associations with women that these these albums acquired? I love that question. A couple of responses. One is to say that just as women are kind of charged with being hostesses, they are also in charge of assembling these books and the books become in some ways the bibliographical equivalent to the parties and country house weekends that that ladies are being expected to organize. The other thing that I think we need to bear in mind is that these books are fascinating to me because they're also a record of thwarted creativity at a moment when kind of being a published author was seen as unfeminine unladylike, women could be bookmakers without ever sort of stepping out in public as authors. So there can be something very creative about the ways in which they curate these books, uh, uh, arrange their contents, create certain juxtapositions. So I I do see it as, as kind of a place where one goes for a more democratic account of what authoring might have involved in past cultures. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious whether right now or in the course of your life, you have kept a book like the kind we're describing, whether a kind of personal one or one that's been a kind of collaborative um, thing with other people. I certainly kept books like that when I was a child. I had many, many scrapbooks. I continue to be the kind of scholar who doesn't take notes on her laptop, but takes notes in blank books, which, uh, you know, means that I don't always have the convenience of uh, the search function that I would have in my laptop. But I do like kind of taking ownership of a piece of writing by transcribing it. I feel as though I know it better as a result of having slowed down and laboriously word by word copied something out. And I have students keeping commonplace books and making albums, which they do with great enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> but, but there are some albums being made at, at, at my university as we speak. <laughs> Well, Deidre Lynch, thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Milan. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip in which Deidre draws parallels between homemade books and internet culture. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at HowToReadNow. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Olivia Branscom, with editorial assistance from me, Monsi Garnani, and from me, Tiani D. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening. <laughs>